Um, we'll get into this series, Sex and Gender in the Image of God, in just a minute. I have a preamble of sorts. Um, just a few things I want to touch on. Sorry, this will drive me crazy. There we go. Um, first off, I wanted to explain what this series is tonight by telling you what it's not. Um, and there's a couple of things that I'd like to, like to put in that category. Um, for starters, it's not really about the what's of sex and gender. It's more about the why's. And so any issue that you can think of, any facet that might fit into the category, will probably come up over the next seven weeks, but only to illustrate the underlying foundation. My hope for this series is to answer the question, why is sex and gender? Uh, and so, so we will have a Q&A after every evening service for the next seven weeks. We can definitely deal with the what's then. Um, but, but I just want you to know up front uh, that that's what we're doing. And the, the primary reason is because the why determines the what's. And that's, that's just true in all sorts of categories. And when we forget the why, or when we don't understand the why, then the what's tend to be inconsistent. Um, they tend to be not very fir firmly rooted in our hearts. They can be optional. There's all sorts of things. Um, but the other thing is, if we don't understand the why, um, then the what's can be arbitrary. They're just boundaries. And I don't know about you, I grew up in a church and the majority of conversations that happened in my church about sex had to do with boundaries. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That, that was a Christian sexual ethic as far as I understood it. Um, the second thing is, when you answer the why, then you get something that's cohesive, something that fits together, something um, that, like I said, is foundational. And even outside the church, even outside Christianity, that's something that our culture is just taking it in the teeth right now for not having. And so all sorts of answers to these issues, even if generally they're applauded and agreed upon, when those answers are followed to their fullest strengths, are in deep contradiction to one another. And we'll touch on some of those things in the weeks to come as well. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention is uh, not only ha have I selected a handful, I think we have four different books available that touch some of the what, some of the topics, places that I would encourage you to begin, and you're welcome to pick up a copy before you leave tonight. They're right in the back, um, uh, and you can, just, you can just buy them and take them with you. Um, but also, I have read extensively over the last two years, and not just on things from my camp or my side or my view or people that I'm familiar with. Um, I am pretty confident that for any given issue that could come up in this category, I've read the best views on the other side, and I'd be glad to point you to those as well. Okay? Um, so all of that to say, if you want for further reading, I have it. I have it in spades. Some of it's not back there because it's 650 pages, and I just nobody, know nobody's going to cut their teeth on that. Um, but, but there are some books back there that you can begin with. Um, and then the last thing I want to say about this series, especially if you're a part of our church. I know some of you um, come from other churches tonight and are just visiting. Of course, you're welcome. Um, but especially from our church, I want you to understand that this series is not the final conversation on these things. That this sermon series is not us drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is inside, that is outside, and then expecting you to go your way. 
um, me uh, in particular, although Matt as well, um, and to some degree Nick, the three pastors that make up this church, we have intentionally dialed back everything else that makes up our daily life for the next seven weeks to be available to talk further, to hear, uh, to, to weep with you, to uh, receive your questions, to pursue um, the Lord in prayer on these things. So why start with the series at all? Uh, because we believe that the Bible speaks to these issues, and we believe that any conversation has to begin there. If God is a God of revelation, if God has spoken, uh, then that's where the conversation needs to begin. So, with those things out of the way, um, we are going to take seven weeks, and like I said, we're going to lay out a general overview answering the why of both sex and gender. If you're curious about how those seven weeks are going to play out, as tempted as I am to just sneakily week by week reveal it, pull the curtain back a little bit more, um, I'll go ahead and tell you. Tonight's going to be primarily an introduction, uh, and then we're going to take three weeks to look at the aspects of the sexual relationship as, uh, as Christianity envisions it. These three aspects are not new, they're not very novel. Um, I found them in authors like John Stott. I found them in um, doc, uh, documents from the Pope and the Catholic Church. I found them in Augustine. I found them everywhere, okay? Um, but we're going to try and look at all three of them relatively close together to get a well-rounded understanding of sex according to the scriptures. Then we're going to take a few weeks and look at gender. Um, and then the final week, we're going to talk about celibacy, because I think, in all honesty, that's a major Achilles heel in the way we often think about sex. Because if we don't understand how celibacy and singleness integrates with gender and sexuality, then we have two different ethics, right? Either, either for the pure and holy singles or for the second class who can't get their act together singles. Either way, sexuality is something that touches all of our lives whether you're in a committed monogamous relationship or not. Gender is something that flows through everything we do, not just our most intimate and sexual relationships. And so, so that will be kind of our final pit stop. Tonight, um, tonight we need to talk about context. We can't really understand what the Bible says about sex or gender without understanding the broad biblical context of the story that the Bible tells. We can't really enter in uh, without knowing the um, different pieces of the biblical story because all of the things the Bible says, it says from the front row seats of those particular places. And so you can't necessarily turn to a single piece of the story and get the definitive word. You need to be able to see the big picture. Tonight, we're going to try and give the big, big picture. The other thing I want to do tonight, and this is one that's particularly important to me, I want to show how Jesus thinks about sex and gender. I think a generally good principle for Christians is to read the Bible like Jesus did. I think a generally good principle for Christians is to come to conclusions on issues of morals and ethics like Jesus did. And so I want to look tonight specifically at how Jesus talked about marriage. But we're not really going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about how Jesus talks about marriage, okay? This is the context that I'm talking about. 
Now, let me fill in the blanks for you. Basically, in the story the Bible tells, there's four major pieces. And if you read a good introduction to Christianity or a good introduction to the Bible, these are the four that they will point out to you. They're pretty simple. There's creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Okay, so let's walk through them and put a little content in them. Creation. This is the reality that the Bible begins with a world made by God that is good. Okay? But the story doesn't end there. Like any other plot, the Bible's plot has a crisis. Something goes wrong. That's what we call the fall. And it doesn't happen near the end of the book like some of our movies. It happens in chapter 3, or the very first book in Genesis. And that reality, the fall, affects everything we experience as human beings. Redemption is the part where Jesus, as promised, shows up and rolls back the effects of the fall, brings about redemption and salvation, um, does something about the human condition to set things right. And consummation is, is basically the fact that even there, even now, even tonight, the story is not yet over. That the Bible looks forward to a time when all things will be made new. Looks forward to a time where every wrong will be made right. Looks forward to a time of consummation where everything will come together. And what we'll see tonight as we look at Jesus talking about marriage in the book of Matthew is that he really navigates through all four of those areas. And so it's a good place for us to learn how this impacts the concept or, or the approach that we're going to take in talking about sexuality and gender. And so if you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, we can begin. If you didn't bring a Bible tonight, there's a black Bible in the back of the pew nearby you that you are welcome to use. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to start in chapter 19. In terms of timeline, all the passages that we're going to look at tonight are conversations that Jesus has in the last few weeks leading up to his crucifixion in Jerusalem. Okay, so these are not spanning his career. Um, they, they're relatively close together. In fact, right after chapter 19, he enters into Jerusalem and the clock is set seven days till the crucifixion. Okay, but here it's pretty far into Jesus' ministry. He's, he's on the last leg of what we believe was about three and a half years of public ministry going around the land of Israel and teaching. Because of that, he's developed a large following and also some enemies. And so that's where we pick up the story tonight in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowd followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, 
because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, the same Jesus speaking here in this passage promised that he would, when he left, would not leave us as orphans, but would send his spirit to guide us into all truth. And so we lean heavily on that promise tonight. We ask God that your spirit would speak, that it would be our guide, that it would lead us to the truth. In Jesus' name tonight, amen. Just a little bit of background to what's going on here. I want you to notice that it's the Pharisees who are bringing these questions. Now, if you're not familiar, these are the upper echelon of the religious leaders of Israel. To be a Pharisee, you had committed yourself to keeping all 613 commandments as recorded in the Old Testament. You had memorized the entirety of the first five books of the Bible, if not extensive more than that, and you had committed yourselves to a very narrow definition of faithful obedience to the will of God. And so they come to have a little bit of a conversation with Jesus, but I want you to notice that they are not coming to him to learn, and they're also not coming to him just to find out his view. Did you see what it said in verse 3? The Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Let me give you a different word than test. Their goal is to trap Jesus. They're bothered by his popularity. They're threatened by his ministry. And so their goal is to put him in the proverbial rock and hard place. Their goal is to narrow his appeal by either coming out against the commandments of Moses and proving himself to be the heretic that they think he is, or drawing a line in the sand on a hot topic issue of that day and alienating half his audience. Okay? When they ask about divorce here, there are two primary schools of thought that, w- that were very popular in Jesus' day. And so they're basically saying, do you stand with us or do you stand with Hillel? That's the question that they're asking. But Jesus doesn't pick a side. Jesus doesn't give an answer. In fact, his answer is relatively surprising. Like I said, you may not you may not recognize that they're asking a question about the Mosaic law, but when they say, is it lawful, they're talking about the Mosaic law. But he doesn't go to the law at all. They're expecting him to pontificate on his interpretation of a particular commandment given in the book of Deuteronomy, and he does something very differently. Notice what he says in verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, first off, as Jesus always does in these conversations, he starts with a phrase like, haven't you read? He looks to the scriptures. But the Mosaic law was scripture. He and the Pharisees agreed on that. That's not where he goes. When he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, he's alluding to Genesis chapter 1, and then he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. In fact, did you notice when they ask this question and they go, well, why did Moses command us to divorce? And he finishes up, he says, that's true, but in the beginning, it was not so. Okay. In other words, 
Jesus says, if we're going to talk about divorce, first we have to understand marriage. And if we're going to understand marriage, we have to go back before the law. We have to go to the beginning. We have to go to creation. Okay. He goes to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, this is a really important point because Jesus is not alone in this. Okay. Not only does he say, let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2, but when Paul talks about sex and the possibility of casual sex, for example, sex with a prostitute in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that anyone who has sex with a prostitute, the two become one flesh? Where does Paul go? Genesis chapter 2. Not only that, but when Paul wants to talk about appropriate dress for genders in 1 Corinthians 14, guess where he goes? Genesis chapter 2. And not only that, but when he wants to talk, sorry, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, when he wants to talk about proper relationships between men and women in the church, where does he go? In chapter 14, Genesis 1 and 2. And not only that, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, here's how gender roles work in the church, where does he go? Genesis 1 and 2. And not only that, but in Galatians, when he says, there is therefore neither, bar or, uh, sorry, neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free man, nor male and female, not or, and, he quotes the Greek Septuagint version of Genesis 1, 27. Okay? If we're going to understand gender and sexuality, Paul and Jesus agree we have to begin at the beginning. We have to look at creation. Okay? Now, I would argue this is true of any topic that we would pick. Those big four categories, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, we have to begin with creation. But that's especially true of gender and sexuality, and I'll show you what I mean. Jesus says two things here. The first, he alludes to chapter 1, and he says, haven't you read where he who created them male and female? That's where he begins, and then he quotes in chapter 2. But let's go back to Genesis so we understand what Jesus is talking about here. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating the world and we see a pattern. On the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. On the second day, he said, let the light be divided from the darkness, and the light and the darkness were divided, and it was good. And that pattern repeats over and over again. On the sixth day, he says, let animals come up from the ground. But then we get to the end of chapter 1, and notice what it says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The pattern breaks down. It doesn't say, and God said, let there be man, and there was man, and it was good. Instead, he has this conversation. It's almost as if the play on stage pauses, and there's this communication behind the scenes. He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? And so we have this unique aspect of the creation of mankind in the image of God, and it's emphasized male and female in the image of God. In Galatians 3.28, this is the male and female that Paul is alluding to. It's the one that Jesus mentioned, he who made them male and female, right? 
And not only that, but notice what comes out of God's mouth next. Creation has this implied concept of gender, and then verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's sexuality, right? It's right there, right at the beginning. And so he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, male and female, be fruitful and multiply. Now, when we turn over to chapter 2 of Genesis, the story actually rewinds a little bit and then retells with more depth. And so chapter 2 doesn't pick up after the creation of man. It retells the story. And instead of here, where it sounds like God has a plan to create male and female, and then he just does so, we actually find out that God begins by creating Adam, a man, whereas in all the other cases he made animals, here he just makes a man, And he puts him in the garden, and we find another break in the pattern. The pattern has been, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. God makes man, puts him in the garden, and he says it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Look at it with me in chapter 2. Verse 18, then God said it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Now our narrator is not distracted. He doesn't start with this problem and go, yeah, it's not good that man should be alone. Oh, I totally forgot, but Adam also named all the animals. There's an intention here. There's a point being made. In fact, what happens after Adam names all the animals? Look at what it says here. So we're in... um, In verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I want you to think about this in two ways tonight, okay? The first is, he recognizes that for every male bear, there's a female bear. For every Mr. Bobcat, there's a Mrs. Bobcat, right? And so as he's naming them, he's seeing these pairs. God knows it's not good for man to be alone. Adam is learning, okay? But there's a second thing here. It says that across all the animals, there wasn't a helper found suitable for him. And that doesn't mean that dog can't be man's best friend, but that's not enough. Okay? So that's when God puts Adam to sleep and creates woman, not completely removed from Adam, but out of Adam's side. And when he wakes up, do you know what he says? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, I know that doesn't sound romantic, but remember the context here. There's dogs, there's cats, there's snakes, there's birds. Holy cow, another human being. That's what Adam says. Bone of my bone. Someone like me, flesh of my flesh. Right? And so what happens next is effectively a wedding, a marriage ceremony. In fact, notice where chapter 2 ends. If you want the definitive statement of life before the fall, look at what it says in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the part that Jesus quotes. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The Bible has a lot to say about guilt, but I want you to recognize here that when it wants to talk about what life was like before the fall, it chooses shame. If there's anything that we can identify quickly in our life when it comes to the topics of gender and sexuality, it's the reality of shame. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But I want you to get the whole view. This is the story that Jesus is alluding to. Now, why go to creation? A couple of things, okay? 
First off, what do we learn as we look here? First, we learn that gender and sexuality is created by God. It's right here. It's part of the plan. Second, we learn that it's good. Right? And so God creates, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good that man should be alone, but by the time you get to the end of the sixth day, at the end of chapter one, it's very good. Okay? Third, it's somehow bound up in this idea of the image of God. Listen, this is the first thing we have to understand tonight. The realities of sex and gender are not on the fringe of what it means to be human. They're at the very heart of it. In fact, they're directly tied to this concept of the image of God, or in Latin, as it's often called, the imago Dei. But what is it? It's, for one, what sets us apart from all other aspects of creation, right? God said there was light, and there was light. But he didn't make light in his image. God said, let there be animals, and there was animals. But he didn't make them in his image. Now, there's really three theological camps when we ask the question, what is the image of God? They span the whole history of church uh, thinking, 2,000 years of Christian thought. And I'll just introduce you to them very quickly. One is the substantive, I hate that word, the substance, substantive, there we go, substantive view. Basically, that this says something about who we are inherently, in substance. And so, for example, a popular expression of the substance view is in the same way that God is rational, he thinks, he speaks, so we are rational beings, right? And clearly, in some sense, that makes us different than the animals. As like G.K. Chesterton likes to jibe, that's why it's a truism to say a man drew a monkey, and it's a joke to say a monkey drew a man, okay? There's something different there. But they would also extend that, and the substantive view would also say that we have morality, that we have a will, we make choices, that we're not just operating on instinct and learned practices, but that we actually make decisions, okay? The other uh, view that has become more popular, beginning with a guy by the name of Barth, is the social view. And I actually am really drawn to the social view because what is said before this image of God? Let us make man in our image. And so when we look at the context here, isn't it possible that what makes us in the likeness or in the image of God is the fact that we have and are made for relationship? The fact that in a unique way we relate to God and to one another? I think that's a pretty compelling view. The third one is called the... um, I forget the term now, but it's the, it's the functional view. The functional view says God is king, and God's created mankind to rule. And we see that same thing here. In fact, there's a good, compelling argument based on the time that this was written that that would point to. If you encountered an image in those days, it's probably a statue. And it's probably a statue of whatever king rules over whatever city you're in. We kind of understand the relationship between a statue and and it being representative of rule, don't we? Right? When we see uh, some tyrannical government overthrown, what's the first thing they do? They pull down the statues of the dictator, right? There's a correlation between these things. Whichever one it is, though, they all basically point to the same thing. Image and likeness means two things. That there's some way that we're like God and that we have a purpose in representing him. As John Piper likes to say, the purpose of an image is to image. 
Here's what I'm saying. That if you're going to understand a Christian ethic at all, and especially a Christian sexual ethic, you're going to have to understand that it's a symbolic ethic. That ultimately and finally, how we behave, how we think, what we do, is bound up in who God is. That's what it means when we were created in the image of God. This means a couple of things that I want to lay down. The first is, all human life, good or bad, strong or weak, oppressed or oppressor, all human life is created in the image of God and therefore inherently has dignity. That's why in Genesis chapter 9 it says, don't take the life of another person for they are created in the image of God. That's why James says, how can you bless God and curse those who are created in his image? Right? So in other words, the way that we talk when we're having a little bit of road rage about the other people denies the dignity of the fact that they were made as in the likeness of and in the image of God. But it also points to destiny. Image of God is what God has for mankind. So related to it is this, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And then lastly, the image of God is duty. Our call in life, our purpose in life, what you were made for according to the Bible is not merely to be like God, but to represent him. Okay? And what I want you to notice is that sex and gender are ingrained right in that idea. And so the image of God is incomplete unless we read male and female, he created them in the image of God. And that the first thing that the Bible wants to talk about is that it's not good for man to be alone and he brings him a wife. Now, I want to be clear here. He's not merely saying it's not good for a man to be without a wife. He's saying it's not good for a man to be without community. Okay? And that's why the first thing this husband and wife do is have children. Okay, there's, there's more to the story. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come. But so it's bound up in this idea of the image of God. That's why, if we're going to talk about marriage according to Jesus, he goes, haven't you read that he who made them male and female from the beginning and said, and then he quotes, and this is the last thing we need to understand. When we're reading in Genesis chapter 2, And he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Two things. One, that word therefore shows that we're not just observing some wedding. Right? It takes this not just as an instance of a sexual relationship, but as a paradigm. I know that one of the things that bogs us down in both sex and especially gender is stereotypes. We're not talking about stereotypes. We're talking about archetypes. Okay? There's a therefore here. Not only that, but here's what Jesus does that's so profound. Go back to Matthew 19. Again, verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore? Who's the speaker of that phrase in Genesis 2, according to Jesus, the one who created them male and female. It's easy to read Genesis 2 as if that's a narrator comment. Like the author of Genesis is saying, this is why people get married, because this is how it was. No, basically, Jesus says God presided over the first marriage and pronounced a therefore. Okay. 
And so he begins with creation. Here's the point. Why do we need creation? Why do we start here when we're talking about sex? It's because sexual ethics has to begin with design. The realities of sex and gender in our life are not incidental. They're designed. They're part of the plan. And so there's a purpose in them. That's what the therefore is there for. Okay? And see, here's the problem. If we leave creation off the table when we think about sexuality, then our sexual ethic will always be too utilitarian and reductionistic. It'll be about the how and not the why. See, this is the problem that the modern world, especially in our country, is having with these topics right now. For general purposes, the modern sexual ethic begins with desire and is boundaried by consent. Okay? It starts with what I want, and then it sets a fence and says, as long as there's consent. And this is relatively consistent. I've spent the last seven years reading the sex advice column of Dan Savage. There's probably nobody who's more important in a modern American sexual ethic. He is the voice of how we think about sex these days. And consent is the threshold. It's the line. The problem is, although consent has to be part of a sexual ethic, there are things that it cannot do. Just read Dan Savage on incest. He has a very difficult time being consistent with incest. And shocker of shockers, he basically ends up saying, look, sometimes the yuck factor should actually matter, which is striking for a homosexual man who's been accused of his relationship being yucky and that making it wrong for 20 years. But consent, he knows there's more to sexuality, but he can't, it won't get you there. So what do we get with a Christian ethic? When we begin with creation, we see that cre- uh, sexuality must begin with design and be boundaried by purpose. Okay. Now, this is something that you probably understand, and if you'll forgive me the simple analogy, imagine you have an incredibly handy and very simple pocket knife. It's there, it's sharp, it's great at cutting things. But sometimes you need a screwdriver, and there's not one around and so you use your knife. Now, if you're like me, you know that that's not always a good idea. That, a, you know, a knife's blade is so sharp and so narrow, it's not really made to turn screws. And so trying to get the torque that you need to turn this screw causes the knife to slip and you might hurt yourself. But more than that, if all you ever do with this knife is screw screws, eventually the knife dulls. And so it doesn't just not fulfill its purpose, it starts to become more difficult to fulfill its purpose. Design matters. And so if we leave creation off the table, we end up with with a view of sexuality that is uh, too utilitarian. Can't answer the why question. But if we stop here with creation, then we have an ethic that's too ideal. Because the truth is, we read this, it's simple. It's black and white, it's easy, and let's be honest, it's beautiful, naked and unashamed. Name one relationship you have in your life that lives up to that ideal, where there's no secrets, where there's no regret, no resentments. It just doesn't sound like real life. 
But Jesus doesn't just talk from creation. In fact, that's the confusion that, that these people have. They go, wait, so if you're talking about Genesis, then why does Moses talk about divorce? And so listen what they ask in verse 6 back in, uh, or 7 in, in 19. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Okay, now, one thing I really want to point out here just quickly, they say, why did Moses command us to get a divorce? And Jesus clarifies. He says, no, 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 no. Moses permitted you to get a divorce. You hear how those two things are different? We don't have time to address that. I just wanted to throw it out there. But more importantly than that, he says there's a reason why the law was given, and he says it's because of the hardness of hearts. You see, the law exists because there's something wrong. He says divorce is an option, but it's a secondary option because there's something wrong with your heart because of hardness of heart. This is not the only place where we see this category, the fall, in Jesus' thinking. Okay, his final conclusion here is, look, if you get a divorce for any reason except for sexual infidelity, then you're committing adultery. He gets pretty intense. Like Jesus always does on issues of sex, he goes stricter, not looser. Than the people of his times. Okay. After that, his disciples are so blown by this reality, they have a follow-up conversation. Look at what it says in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. I cannot communicate to you tonight how profound that statement is in the mouth of a first century Jew. The rabbis believed that be fruitful and multiply Procreation was one of the 613 commandments and every man was responsible to fulfill it. And now they're going, maybe it's not worth marrying. This is quite a crisis. Listen to what Jesus says, though. Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He says, you're right. Some people aren't going to get married, but that's not for everybody. And then notice what he says. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, really what he does here is profound because a eunuch is something that all Jews thought was problematic. A eunuch is somebody who's been castrated so that they can fulfill a political role. Okay? So if you're a Jew and you believe that procreation is required of you, castration is in the wrong direction, right? So they thought relatively lowly of eunuchs, and here he holds up a eunuch as, as a epitome of discipleship. Do you see that? He says, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, something to be emulated. He picks up on what uh, the prophet Isaiah says when he says, you know what? Someday eunuchs, even though they don't have kids, are going to have security in my household, says the Lord. But it's the two first categories I want to point out to you. He says, some people aren't going to be married because they were born eunuchs. Their physical nature is incompatible with this Genesis chapter 2 relationship. He says, and, and I'll just give you a, a quick, quick version of that. Infertility, right? In the world we live, be fruitful and multiply is great. Generally, we see it as a blessing, but some people are infertile. And then he says, on top of that, some people are made eunuchs by men. That's oppression, that means somebody, probably a prisoner of war, was taken aside, castrated, and put into slavery. They lose the opportunity to have a marriage. 
to have children because of the behavior of someone else. This and the hardness of heart, this is the fall. This is what happens in the next chapter with Genesis 3. And I want you to recognize that when you read Genesis 3, it is not about a new topic, right? The fall directly impacts the relationship in this marriage. It goes from bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the two shall become one flesh, intimacy to it's the woman that you gave me. He objectifies and distances himself from this woman, right? The curse itself says, because of what you've done, now having children is going to be painful, and it's going to be dangerous, and it's going to be difficult. In fact, she says, your desire, your longing will be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Gender and sexuality is tainted by the fall. Now, when the Bible talks about the fall, it does it very broadly. Not only are we fallen people, we are thoroughly fallen. And not only are we fallen people, we live in a fallen environment. Okay? Romans chapter 3 is when Paul tries to make this point. The book of Romans, he's basically trying to explain both the need for the gospel and then the beauty of the fact that the gospel meets that need. And so in chapter 3, he's making a case that everyone needs a savior because we're all sinners. And he does this by grabbing as many quotations as he can from the Old Testament and he just strings them together machine gun style. But that's not all he does. He organizes them. And that's easy to miss. Really quickly, turn to Romans chapter 3. So he takes quotations from the Psalms and from the prophets, from the book of Numbers. He strings them all together, but he organizes them, and they break down into two parts. The first one I want you to notice as we read it is all talking broadly. Everyone, all, no one, right? It's broad and categorical. The second half is basically this anatomical journey. He mentions body parts, mouth, tongue, eyes, feet, hands, okay? Look, I'll show you what I mean. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see how all of those are broad? No exclusions, no exceptions. The reality of the fall and our sin nature touches every single life. But he doesn't stop there. He then says it touches every layer of our identity. And so this is what he says. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin of misery. In the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, and so Paul says we're all fallen and we're all thoroughly fallen. Listen, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that everyone in their gender and sexuality is fallen. It's not that some people are fallen. It's not just that some people are infertile. This is tremendously important to understand. And it's actually not very hard to prove either. Okay? For us, for any of us, these issues are a mixed bag of highs and lows, of joys and terrors. That's what the fall means. And it goes to the depths of our being. That's why Jeremiah says the heart, the place of desire, the heart is deceitful and ultimately wicked. Who can trust it? What does this mean for us? 
See, here's the thing. If you leave the fall off the table when you talk about sexuality, then the talk's going to be too naive. We're fallen. We can't begin with desire because our desires are questionable. And I'm not just talking about some people's desires. I'm talking about all people's desires. That's what the fall means. And not only that, but we also live in a fallen world. We don't have time to turn there, but I'll just point you to Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul says that the whole world is groaning because of the futility that it was subjected to in the fall. Earthquakes, hurricanes. And he says, and not only that, but we ourselves groan who are the children of God, we groan longing for our adoption, which means even as a Christian, you experience the effects of the fall. You say with Paul in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I practice. Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay. That's the world that we live in. But if that's all you talk about when you talk about sexuality, then your view will be too negative. And this is a great problem, a great pit that the church fell in for hundreds and hundreds of years, was that sex at best was a necessary evil. Or even worse, that one gender, women in particular, was, was lesser. No created in the image of God for female. It was just men and not men. Augustine, who... You have to understand his story. Oftentimes we interpret things through our own experience. Augustine's big issue, the one that kept him from Christianity, was his sexuality. He was living with a woman. He had a child with a woman. He was having lots of sex on the side. And even as he was looking into Christianity, he honestly records, I prayed, Lord, make me pure, just not yet. But when he was radically saved by Jesus, he chose to live a life of total chastity. And so when he talks about sexuality, he says, don't have sex unless you're being procreating. And even then, I'm pretty sure it's still sinful, but what are you going to do? And he even goes, I'm pretty sure that Adam and Eve, however they would have had children if it weren't for the fall, wouldn't have been sexual at all. For him, sexuality is just so tainted by the fall, he cannot proclaim with the book of Genesis, and God created them male and female, and it was good. And too often in the church, because we, we, we care about the boundaries, because we control the boundaries, we have a negative ethic. We focus on the fall and we leave it short. So Jesus talks from creation in the beginning, it was not so. Because of your hardness of hearts, there's a reality of eunuchs who were born this way. There's a reality of eunuchs who were made this way. All of our lives are touched by these things, but he doesn't stop there. There's also this category called redemption. Remember the context of who's talking in Matthew chapter 19. Remember what's just about to happen. Jesus didn't come to interpret the law. He came to die. And so he comes, he knows that fallen condition, and he does something about it, living the life that we couldn't live and dying the death that we deserve. That's redemption. Okay? And that redemption is so profound. And if you don't keep this category in mind, then things get really confusing again. How is it that Jesus can be so rigid on interpreting the law and what's appropriate and inappropriate in sexual conduct? How can he say, you've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery, which is one of the Ten Commandments, but I to say to you that if you even lust after another person in your heart, you've already committed adultery. How can he speak that way 
And then when a woman is caught in adultery, say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Because he's there to do something about it. That's redemption. Now, redemption is such a big category, it's literally what we gather every Sunday to talk about. What does it mean when we say Christ died for you? It means forgiveness. It means the gift of the Holy Spirit. It means access to God in prayer. It means an incredible destiny and inheritance. It means so many things. I only want to draw your attention to two of them tonight. And the first is that with redemption comes a change in our identity. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now pause. What he's about to do here we call a vice list, meaning he's just going to list a bunch of bad things. There's eight of them at least in the New Testament. One of them in the mouth of Jesus, seven in the mouths of Paul and James and Peter. Okay. Now side note, every single one of those vice lists includes some form of sexual immorality. This is not a minor issue in the vice list. Second, all but one of them contains at least two references to some form of sexual immorality. And generally, more than half of them, sexuality heads the list. Okay? Now, the second thing I want to say is, as I read here, he's going to make this list, but that's not all he's going to do. And so I'm expecting some of us are going to hit a speed bump tonight as we read this list. Hold on. Okay? Listen to what he says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice he doesn't stop there. He says in 11, and such were some of you. He's not talking about people outside the church and people inside the church. It's not bad and righteous. He's talking broadly about fallen ones and forgiven ones in the midst of the fallen ones. In fact, he talks about an identity change. He says, this isn't who you are anymore. That's why Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, and so we get something new. We get the removal of our guilt. We get the breaking of our chains in redemption. We get new life. You see... If you leave redemption off the table when you talk about gender and sexuality, then by definition, your view will be too hopeless. And your tendency will be to settle and just go, well, what else can we do? This is how life is. But with Jesus Christ, there's not just forgiveness, there's redemption, there's new identity. But that's not all there is. There's also a call to holiness. Listen this time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to remember that the people Paul generally writes to didn't grow up in the church, right? Hadn't been Christians. These are Gentiles who came from pagan backgrounds. In fact, in Thessalonica, he was only there for a couple of days and he got chased out of town. And so they're relatively new Christians. And so he writes to them and he says this in chapter 4. Now pause. Do you ever wonder what God's will is for your life? Did you know that there's three places in the New Testament where it explicitly says, for this is God's will for you, and then tells you? 
This is one of those. Notice what it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification goes beyond what we talked about in new identity. Basically, the Bible talks about salvation in three tenses. God has saved you. Also, God will save you. Sanctification is God is saving you. It means that you've not just been given a righteous standing in Jesus and a new identity, a fresh pair of new clothing, clean and washed, but he's also transforming you to be, in actuality, more like Jesus. That's what the word sanctification means. But I want you to notice that the entirety of Paul's unpacking sanctification for the Thessalonians has to do with the issue of sexuality. Notice what he says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 4, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother or sister, it's a generic word there, in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, listen, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So redemption also means that we're called to holiness. It means that God is slowly transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. If we go back to this idea of image of God, we were created in the image of God, but in the fall it was tarnished. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus came bearing that same image in flesh and blood, the full image of God, and now we are being transformed into his image and that image is being restored. That's one telling of the gospel story. And so redemption. But here's the problem. If redemption is the only thing, if it's the only place that you deal with a sexual ethic, you probably won't deal with sex at all. If redemption is where we focus, then Christianity just becomes a part of your life that has no aspect, no touch to anything else in your life. It's just forgiveness. It's just something I do when I go to church on Sundays. It's just something I believe and it has no bearing on your life. You can't understand redemption without creation in the fall. But that's not all Jesus says about sex, about marriage in the Gospel of Matthew. We have to move forward a few chapters to get the next one. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. This is at most weeks and probably less than weeks later Jesus is talking here. Now not merely in the region of Judea but in the city of Jerusalem just days before his death And he tells a parable. Matthew's gospel is full of parables. These are illustrations that Jesus used to explain what it was he was doing, why it was that he came, what God was doing in sending his son. And I want you to notice that this one here uses marriage and the wedding in particular. Look at what he says in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He says, Do you want to understand what I'm here to do? Let's talk about a wedding. And here's the thing. Once again, this is not just something that Jesus does. And so John, when he's talking about Jesus in his life, and people are coming to John the Baptist, and they're going, Man, his ministry is getting really big. Nobody's coming your way anymore. And he says, Look, I'm a groomsman, and I rejoice that the groom has the bride. Jesus' very first miracle in the Gospel of John, John only gives us seven miracles, and all of them he calls signs. 
He says, you want to understand Jesus' ministry? Here's seven things Jesus did that paint you a picture. The very first one takes place at a wedding. John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he explains everything God is going to do, explains heaven itself in the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when he sees the new Jerusalem, this representation of our eternal state, of our fate as Christians, he says, I saw it descending from the sky like a bride adorned for her wedding day. And Paul's the real kicker. Paul goes back to Genesis in Ephesians chapter 5, just like everyone else does, talking about the relationship between husband and wife. He quotes and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two will become flesh. And he says, This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and his church. He says, That verse in Genesis chapter 2, it's about husband and wife, but it's not really about husband and wife. He says it's about what Jesus is doing with his church. There's another part of what Jesus does here a little bit later in chapter 22. The Sadducees, another group of religious leaders, come to Jesus and try and trap him with their own question. We don't have time to walk through the whole thing. I just want you to listen to Jesus' answer. Look at what he says in chapter 22, verse 29. But Jesus answered them and said, You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, in the final day, in the consummation, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this is really profound. He points forward to the future and he says two things. He says, there's going to be a wedding. None of you will be married. See, consummation means that life as we know it now, especially in sex and gender, is pointing towards something that's coming. And that means that the symbol or the sign is significant because of what it points to, but it's not ultimate because it's only the sign. It's only the shadow. You see, if, if you leave consummation off, then your sexual ethic will be only, it'll be too ultimate. It's too easy to make sex in these things a god. Because we basically say, life is all we get, this is all there is, God's created sex and it's good. If I don't have it here, then I miss the boat. You know what Jesus says when he says, in heaven there will be no marriage? We tend to think that singleness is the temporary part of life. And at least ideally, marriage is the permanent state that we're shooting for. No. Singleness is the permanent state, and marriage is just an interruption. Here's what I'm saying tonight. If this is true, that sex is significant because it points to what God is doing in Jesus Christ. If this is true, then for those of you who have the best experience you can imagine of this, fulfill the totality of what God designed sex and gender to be. It'll still fall short. It'll always only be the shadow to the reality. And for those of you who never experience it, or experience it full of pain, or frustration, or difficulty, you feel the full weight of the fall, that doesn't remove you from the reality it points to. Too often when we read Ephesians chapter 5 and go Christ in the church, we make marriage to Jesus, this image that it's using, a consolation prize for the single. <laughs> That's not even who Paul is talking to. He's talking to all of us. He's saying the fate of Christianity is the real thing that sex and marriage is about. Notice that it's not like the parable when he says, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? 
Paul says, by design, all the way in Genesis chapter 2, God says, I want to teach these people about the relationship I want to have with them, so I'll invent marriage. I'll invent sex. But what happens if you make this consummation the only part of your sexual ethic? Then you've got something that's too otherworldly. You have no value or no meaning for sex in this world. It's just, it's just um, you know, waiting. And so we keep all four of these in tension. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And when we do so, we get a full understanding of sex as the Bible talks about it. Now, I want to double back for a second and talk about the fall. I want to make a very important point. Too often, when the church has talked about this issue, it points to the fall for other people and not for themselves. And so, whatever our sexual life looks like, whatever our sexual ethic plays out as, we hold it in pride. If the world has fallen, then the right response is compassion. That's what we see in Jesus' ministry. There's a truth to these things. There's a design to these things. And the common person heard them gladly. And the sinners and the tax collectors, and the word there for sinners, inevitably means prostitutes. Those who were classed as, you know, the cultural sinners, the estranged sinners. That's where he spent his time. Those are the people that he loved. Never did he draw a line in the sand and go, hey, look, you better get yourself fixed before I have anything to do with you. Why? Because the world isn't merely fallen. Jesus has come. There is such a thing as redemption. There is such a thing as forgiveness. There is such a thing as hope. And if you forget that, the first place you'll forget it is in your own need for it. And the second place you'll forget it is in, in the benefit of it for anyone else. So what are we going to do for the next six weeks? We're going to ask the question, if we're created in the image and likeness of God, then what does sex and gender say about who God is and the relationship he desires to have about us? That's the why. And if you don't understand the why, then the what is irrelevant. Let's pray. Father, I think I can speak honestly for all of us who are Christians here, that we want to understand the design of these things, the purpose of these things, the why behind the what. We want to know what you want of us. We understand that even where you've given us boundaries, that those are not the harsh and arbitrary commands of a vindictive or distant God but the loving warnings of a father. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, as we go through this series, as we think on these things, as we run our own lives and experiences, highs and lows, the things we've done and the things that have been done to us, as we run it through, I just pray that we would run it through this whole paradigm, that we would think biblically about sex and gender through the context of creation, that it's good, that it has a design, 
fall, that things are not as they should be, and that impacts all of us. Redemption, that Jesus has come to set things right, and so there's forgiveness, and there's freedom, there's new identity, and there's the possibility of practical growing in righteousness, holiness, and purity, and that there's consummation, that for all of us as Christians, the best is yet to come in these things, that what we've experienced in the sign and where it's been good is only a small taste of the goodness of the reality it represents, and where it's fallen short will never rob us of the reality it represents. God, I thank you for these truths. And I pray for the places where we're prone to deceive ourselves, where we're just not sober enough sexually to even think clearly, that you would continue our sanctification because we know this is your will. And for any who's here who's not a Christian tonight, And for those who come in the next few weeks, I pray that they'd be able to see through the symbol to the reality. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to have a time of question and answer. I forgot to mention, but it's written there up on the screen um, that you can text questions to that number. It'll take me just a minute here to get the the laptop uh, live and we'll take some questions. So let's do that. Okay, uh, here's one. Hopefully it will show up on screen and then I can throw them up here. But um, this one says, can you elaborate a bit more about the four reference books? Um, I mentioned to you that we've brought four books tonight that you're welcome to pick up that are recommended reading. They touch on four particular topics. Um, One is called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Gender dysphoria has direct relevance to the um, issues of of transgender. Not everyone who is transgender experiences gender dysphoria, but effectively gender dysphoria is the discomfort you feel with your sense of self not aligning with your physical body in in a gendered sense. Um, The book is from Mark Yarhouse. He is a Christian psychologist who started the Institute for Sexual Identity that is basically doing research that no one else will touch. And so they are primarily focusing on people who experience gender dysphoria and have chosen not to transition, okay? And so the Christians haven't been talking to these people because they don't think they exist. And the secular people haven't been talking to these people because they don't want it known that they exist. Um, And so he's done extensive studies. He's a clinical psychologist, so he's spent hours and hours talking with people, um, and he just kind of walks you through from a Christian viewpoint with his own hands-on experience and lots and lots of personal testimony through the reality of gender dysphoria. It's a little bit clinical in places, um, but it's honestly the best introduction out there. Until last month, it was the only book dealing with this that I was aware of, and frankly, the new one I didn't really like. Um, So it's a good place to start. Another of the books uh, is by a pastor named Preston Sprinkle. Um, It's called People to be Loved, and it deals with the issue of homosexuality. Um, Preston Sprinkle, as I mentioned, is a pastor, and when he decided to deal with these things, instead of just locking himself in a tower and hitting the books to try, and these are his words, to solve the issue 
of what the Bible thinks about homosexuality. He decided to split his time between doing that study and spending time having coffee, conversations, dinners with people uh, who identify from the LGBT community, Christians and non, in the church and outside the church, very broadly. Um, it's a very good introduction to the issues and the way that he handles it is with a surprising amount of humility um, and, uh, and honesty. So it's a very good read. It's a good place to start. Uh, and it, it benefits from being one of the newer books on the topic. Um, and he's so well studied, it's a good introduction to almost anything you'd find out there. Um, uh, another book that I have put back there uh, is called Divine Sex. It's by a pastor named Jonathan Grant who was pastoring a church in London. Um, and to some degree, he's trying to do what we're doing with this series. But what he's very, very good at is explaining the modern sexual ethic that our world tends to think through, where it comes from, and where it falls flat. Um, he's, he's very well versed in studies. He quotes one book that I love. You can put this on your for further reading list called Premarital Sex in America. It's about a decade old book by two sociologists whose names I can't pronounce, um, who, uh, who basically took the biggest studies that have been taken about people living in their 20s and their sexual behavior and then just said, what do these statistics tell us uh, about how sex works? And then they did a bunch of hands-on interviews and said, how do people think sex works? And what they found was the incongruence between those two things. And so the book finishes with 10 modern myths about sex. Uh, it's a very interesting read. Um, but, but basically, divine sex walks through these things um, and, uh, and tries to explain a Christian sexual ethic. It's quite a bit more pastoral than, than what we're doing uh, in this sermon series. He, he starts with people are at. He started it because he had a bunch of singles in his church, and there was a disgruntledness to the dating scene within his church. There was frustration, and so he was, that's where he starts. Um, the last book is written by Kathy Keller, who is the wife of the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. It's called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Um, it's very short. It's incredibly brief. It deals with, um, with gender roles focusing primarily within the church. Um, but the reason why I wanted to put her there is not only is she a really refreshing writer, but she was actually, when she met her husband Tim, moving towards ordination in the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, uh, and then through studying, not realizing there was another side, thinking that all churches had women pastors, uh, and then studying uh, came to a different conclusion um, and writes from that place. And so, like I said, it's a very, a very quick read um, and, and very refreshing. So those are the four books. Now... This is so frustrating. I can see all of the texts. I just can't see them on my screen. So I'll go back to my, go back to my email. Okay. How do you view marriage having happened at early ages, as early as puberty in Jesus' day, and how that fast forwards to how we should consider both premarital sex and the fact that people of all cultures today tend to get married much later in life? Okay, there's an observation there that's worth recognizing, which is that the average age of people getting married, especially in Western world and especially in America, is up and up and up and up and up. 
In fact, in premarital sex in America, almost all the people they talk to agree that you would be crazy to get married before your 30s. Now, just a side note, biologically, in terms of fertility, the 20s are the high point for a woman's life and they start to decline in 30s. We don't generally talk about that as a culture because our cultural wisdom says wait until your 30s. Um, and so we use the language of settling down, that whatever the 20s is for is active and then you settle into life in the 30s. Um, also, the second observation that this question makes, which is accurate, is that in the, uh, in the world the Bible was written in, uh, people tended to marry much younger. Um, men in their early 20s and usually women in their high teens. Um, and so, so we do have to recognize a tremendous pressure that our culture puts on life by delaying that, which is the fact that you come to um, sexual uh, adolescence and even sexual maturity now at least a decade before most people get married. Um, which puts great pressure on the possibility of avoiding premarital sex. Um, now, when it comes to answers to that, there's two that I would point to. One is, I really think we need to consider why it is we think it's better to wait to get married. I think a lot of the underlying reasons that our culture provides for that um, are, one, relatively self-oriented. You know, settling down says what? It says that this is a time for active and pleasure, and then that's a time for passive and giving up on life, right? Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's that sense. Second, um, I think there's a complete misunderstanding on the joys of marriage and, and having kids um, that, that our, our world just doesn't understand. Many people today, you know, come from homes that are not so great, broken marriages, um, you know, and so they have these concerns. Uh, and then the other thing that I want to mention um, in relationship to that is that um, um, a lot of the theories that go into how that works and why that works uh, actually make it even worse. So for starters, our culture doesn't seem to do this according to premarital sex in America because they don't like marriage they actually have a very high view of marriage and so they don't want to enter into it flippantly, right? They know the statistics on divorce, but here's the problem. What's, what that's led to in America is serial monogamous relationships, right? Where you go from one relationship to another looking for the one. And the problem is because none of those have the commitment up front that marriage entails, as we'll see in the weeks to come, they're almost doomed to failure. And the more that you build up that habit, do we really believe that your relationships with people for an entire decade can be falling apart because of things that get in the way and then you're going to meet a person that that doesn't help or that that doesn't happen with? Um, there's an Achilles heel in our view of marriage that's perpetuating the difficulty of marriage um, because we've forgotten what it's for, okay? Now, that's totally idealistic. I can preach every Sunday settle down, and the truth is it just doesn't work that way. Even if you desire to get married at a young age, you're in the minority, um, and the truth is that many of the men that are growing up need some years to mature, unfortunately, before they're marryable. Um, and so here's the other part of this. One of the things we're going to learn, and this is true of somebody who's devoted their lives to celibacy, is singleness does not mean alone. Nobody's called to an alone life. And the church has to grow in its ability to be the family 
single people don't currently have, whatever their reason for singleness is. Back in Matthew 19, we didn't read it, but Jesus is talking about, uh, talking about things, and this is what he says. He says, for any who leaves husband or wife or mother or father or son or daughter for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive a hundredfold and then eternal life. In other words, he says that the church should be a family for the familyless, a, a, a committed community of support. And the truth is we, we struggle with this because we're so uh, autonomous and so independent and so generally fear, afraid of commitment. But, but any sexual ethic, any Christian ethic is never to be lived out in isolation. Change, transformation, righteousness is a community project. Um, okay. Do eunuchs still exist today? If so, how would one discern if they are eunuchs? That's a very interesting question. Um, eunuchs, as the Bible talks about them, I'm not aware of still being a thing. In other words, people who for political reasons have been castrated. Um, but I do think the way that Jesus talks about them does touch on other issues that are worth pointing out. Um, for example, uh, there is the reality of intersex. Okay? Now, intersex is a broad category that just means that your body physically ends up somewhere ambiguous when it comes to gender. And gender is a major category, just bodies. Gender is not just about sexual organs on the outside. It's also about your gonads, your internal sexual organs. It's also about your chromosomes. Let me remind you from biology that a man has a Y and an X chromosome, whereas a woman has two Xs. Intersex means that on one of those categories, there's incongruence. Okay. Um, so what that means is that for many of them, a proactive sexual relationship is severely compromised in all sorts of different ways. And this is not just about babies born with ambiguous genitalia. Some conditions of intersex don't come to be known until you're going through puberty and then they're trying to figure out what's going on and they go, oh my gosh, you have ovaries. Okay. Um, uh, and so, so this is the thing. In, in terms of how rare we're talking about, it's something that's probably a little bit underreported. There are those who advocate that it's as consistent or as, as um, probable in human statistics as Down syndrome. Okay, so just think about that. How many people have you met or encountered with Down syndrome in your life? I would imagine it's somewhere between, depending on what your life is, a half dozen and two dozen. Okay, so this is not an insignificant, you've never met an intersex person. But clearly, what Jesus says about eunuchs would be relevant to them. When he says some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, he opens the can, and what he recognizes is that many will not choose a life of marriage for the sake of Christianity. And that, by the way, is unique to Christianity. Judaism required men to get married. Islam speaks very negatively of these things. Mormonism says that you miss out on part of the afterlife if you don't have an eternal spouse. But Christianity, both in the life of Jesus, its founder, who was single, and Paul, its great promoter, who was also single, and says the single life is something you should consider. Um, you know, and so, so in all of those ways, I think that category is, is important. Um, there are those who apply it more broadly than that, but that's a good start. Um, start. Okay, so this one says, what scripture was about being eunuchs cared for? It's in the book of Isaiah, 
um, and without spending a bunch of time digging around, it's somewhere between 54 and 60. It's somewhere in that range. Um, uh, and uh, you can find it there. Okay, here's a very interesting question. Does it violate the design if a married couple uses sex toys? Now, this is a little bit preemptive in what we're going to talk about, but I think it's a really good question. Okay, as we're going to see, sex has these three aspects of it, which I'll just give you up front. Um, traditionally, they're called the erotic, the unitive, and the procreative. Okay, so there's, there's sexual desire and the interaction of that. There's the sexual act. There's the unitive, which is this idea of the two becoming one flesh that is more than just the sexual act, but is inherently bound up with it. And then there's the procreative, um, the fact that the sexual act produces children. Now, the way we're going to talk about, we're going to expand all of those because they're all too narrow. What we're really going to talk about is embodied sexuality, which means sex isn't something we do. It's not even something our bodies do. It's, it's, it's part of us and it's something we do. Um, uh, the unitive or the intimate uh, and, and marriage, uh, and then procreative, which is actually, I think, better pointed towards social. Not every sexual relationship is going to end in kids, but all sexuality has a social aspect beyond intimacy. It is not good for man to be alone. It broadens out not just to spouse, but to community, to society, these types of things. Um, and so, so many of the sexual practices that we invite into our lives have never been run through that filter before. There was a church um, that I applauded for talking about sex because the truth is a lot of churches don't do this. Um, but one of the problems I had with their approach is it seemed that he had just taken generally the world's view of sex and then put it in the boundaries of marriage. And so it was common for him to say things like, stripper poles are fine as long as they're in the bedroom of a married couple. Um, the issue is not, is that incompatible? It's that it hasn't been filtered at all. He never stopped to go, what does a stripper pole and stripping in general say about sexuality? Okay, Take pornography. I, I, sex toys is a harder one I don't want to talk about tonight. But take pornography. What if it's just pornography of your spouse? I would argue that's problematic, and here's why. Because pornography inherently falls short of embodiment. It's not you and your spouse, it's you and an image of your spouse. And if we've learned anything about pornography, when you distance your sexuality from connection with a living being, it changes your sexuality. And so over time, you can't be intimate with another person. Not, not just in the act of sex, and so you need pornography to prime the pump, pump if you will, although that's clearly something that happens. Um, but also you have a hard time relating to people in general because you've objectified the sex act. And I don't think that danger is missing just because you know the person the picture's of. Or even if you know them intimately. Okay? And so, so like I said, I don't want to give definitive answers. Martin Luther's one of my heroes. And there was a guy who came after him by the name of um, Karlstadt. And Karlstadt uh, took all these issues of the Reformation and just pushed them into high gear. And so he was forcing people to take both kinds of communion, which wasn't done before the Reformation. Wine was only available for the priests. Uh, he was taking uh, crucifixes and shattering them. There was, he was just very, very uh, about these things. And this was what Luther said about Karlstadt that I want to avoid. He says... 
The Pope tells you what you must do. Karlstadt tells you what you can't do. Neither of them leave any room for Christian conscience. I don't want to make that same mistake. I'm not the authority here, okay? I'll be honest. I don't find sex toys in the Bible, so I'm reluctant to tell you how God feels about them. But I will tell you how to think biblically, okay? And I do think we need to... um, to not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means anything we encounter, we should be thoughtful about. Let's keep going. How can we think about the case of intersex from these four perspectives? I think that'll be a really good illustration, okay? And so, so this is a really important issue. In fact, one of the best books I read Um, is called Sex Difference in Christian Thought. And specifically, the author whose name is Megan... uh, I'll pull it up while I'm talking. Um, Oh, Megan DeFrenza. There we go. Uh, She asks this exact question. Knowing what the Bible says about gender and then knowing about the reality of intersex, do we need to rethink these things? Because if it's male and female created in the image of God and you're intersex, does that deny your humanity? Does it deny your dignity? And one of the things that's really interesting in her book is she points out that that question being difficult is a new thing for the church. The church throughout ages has known about intersex people and had answers to these questions, but the way that we've handled gender for the last 200 years has skewed in a direction that makes this a much harder conversation. But let's just walk through the categories. I would recommend her book. Um, uh, it's It's an interesting study. I learned a lot, but... So we have to recognize that male and female created in the image of God must mean something. There must be significance in that, okay? And I'm reluctant for those who say, shouldn't we just settle for treating people as people and and ignore the differences? The first thing I would point, point out to you is that all differences point to similarities. That when we say a turtle is slow and a rabbit is fast, that's because they both move. We don't say a turtle is slow and a triangle is pink, right? Difficult, or differences and, and similarities go hand in hand. Um, but one of the fears I have about many versions of feminism is that it eradicates the feminine. And I think it's too important to eradicate because it says things about who God is, okay? And so throwing out gender is something we can't do because male and female in the image of God. Nevertheless, there is the fall which means that not all of these things line up the way they should. Redemption is easy because, as I told you, not only does Jesus say this is a paradigm that's real in Christianity, you don't have to have children to be a Christian, you don't have to get married to be a Christian, but he also holds it up as an ideal of of discipleship. That's why Paul says, if you're married, you should think of yourself as not being married. Marriage can't be ultimate to the Christian life. It's not the primary relationship. Jesus said, unless you hate your spouse, you cannot be my disciple. Using a Jewish idiom, not saying that you should be mean to your spouse, but saying if there's a choice between Jesus and spouse, you have to choose Jesus. He calls for primacy. Okay? Not only that, but as I mentioned, Isaiah prophesies that when the kingdom of God comes, eunuchs won't find themselves on the outside. In Judaism, eunuchs couldn't come into the temple. Recognize that when when the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is headed back to Ethiopia and reading this scroll of Isaiah, his encounter with the God of Israel has been very limited because he can't go into the temple. And when he's reading in Isaiah, 
And he gets to Isaiah 53 and he asks this question and he says, oh, that's about Jesus, let me tell you about him. If he just keeps reading, and like I said, I think it's even chapter 54, he finds himself in the book. He finds that he was destined to have a place in the kingdom of God, that God has a security and a family for the eunuch. Okay? And consummation. Like I said, uh, having um, sexual complications from the fall does not deny you the reality that the symbol of these things points to. And so this, the full totality of what God says that sexual relationships and intimacy and embodiment are about, the best is yet to come, that's for the eunuch as well. Let's do two more. Um, if I can figure out how to view them on my computer, I can actually text you back answers. I don't have to know who you are to do that. And so the questions I don't get to, I will send you personal responses. But let's take two more before we close tonight. You said a modern sexual ethic is desire and then consent. You said that a creation ethic was design and blank. You said it quickly, and I didn't catch it. Uh, design and purpose. And so here's specifically what I said. I said a modern sexual ethic begins with desire and ends with consent. A biblical sexual ethic begins with desire and ends with purpose. In fact, I'll even modify that purpose coupled with destiny, right? Not just Genesis, but also revelation. Not just creation, but also consummation. Like every other issue in our life, we live our Christian life strung between two realities. The world as God designed it and the new world that God is making. Okay. One more. Is all remarriage after divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality adultery? Okay, now this is a huge topic, one that we don't have time to bridge, and I don't like to give simple answers. Um, there is one other place where the Bible explicitly leaves room for divorce and remarriage, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the context, Paul is talking to those who are married, who have become Christians, and are now living in a mixed marriage with a Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse. And some in the Corinthian churches were afraid that that somehow ruined their sanctification or their holiness because they're unequally yoked. And he says, no, 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 no. Stay in the marriage. It's a tremendous opportunity. In fact, Peter picks up on this too, and he says, here's how you should treat an unbelieving spouse. He says, however, if they refuse to stay with you, if they abandon the marriage, let them go. And then he says that the person that that happens to is not bound. So those are the two places that the Bible is clear on. Now let me add to that, when Jesus says except for sexual immorality, he uses the junk drawer term. He doesn't say except for adultery. He says except for pornea. That's an incredibly broad category, okay? Um, so to, to answer the question, those are the places where everybody agrees, except John Piper. His view is very interesting, but he would say that, that remarriage is not what the Bible talks about at all, that divorce is a bad thing that happens, but remarriage isn't possible for anyone. Um, but for the most part, everyone would agree that in those two places uh, that remarriage is okay. Let me add just one more lens before we close to this that I think is really important. When we talk about repentance, which just means turning back to God, God always meets us where we're at which means that this question is very different from somebody who's currently married and considering adultery to somebody who's recently divorced to somebody who's remarried. 
okay? What repentance looks like in that place is going to be relatively different. So, for example, one time I taught on divorce and a friend of mine who I'd known only for a couple of months came up to me in tears and he said, I've been remarried four times. I've only been with my wife for about a year. Does God want me to divorce her and go and try and fix it with my first wife? And I said, with full confidence, no. And the reason I said with full confidence, no, is because Deuteronomy actually deals with that. It says if a man does get remarried, he cannot go back to his original spouse. Why? Because more divorce doesn't make you more righteous, right? And so what I told him is, look, where you are, that's where God meets you. And so repentance for him means being faithful to his wife. I think these things are complex. Consider Jacob. Imagine Jacob has just returned to your church in Bethel. He's been away from the Lord. He tells you that he's come back. He's buried his idols. And he says, now let me introduce you to my two wives, the other two women I have children with. Now what? What do you tell him? One of the reasons the Bible doesn't provide cut and dry answers is because we settle for cut and dry answers. And God's interested in the heart. He's interested in the process. If we read the Bible just to go, am I right or am I wrong, we're asking the wrong question. The right way to read the Bible is to say, where is God calling me to deeper change? Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you all coming tonight, and I thank you for your thoughtful questions. As I mentioned, there's more questions here in my phone. Um, Over the course of this week, I will text you back, and if there's any that I feel are really great, we'll prime the prompt with them um, during the Q&A next week. Let me pray, and I'll dismiss you. Father, I feel like I have to proclaim for all of our sakes what it says in Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. God, what, what the author of Proverbs is pointing out to us is, is that we have to work hard to know truth. We have to really want it. We have to inquire, we have to desire, we have to ask, we have to seek for it, we have to value it, and then we will find it. And I pray, Lord, that in these issues especially, because they're so close to the heart of what it means to be human, and because they say the deepest and most profound things about who you are, I pray that we'd work hard in coming to our conclusions. Not just in what the Bible says, but how it walks out in our own lives. And I pray with my whole heart the, the most important factor of what the Bible says about sex in our lives would be what we're going to do about it. That we wouldn't settle for how we often do. Just, just the judgmentalism that comes with the fall that's always condemning others when we have a log in our own eyes. When we, uh, as Paul says, you know, judge others when we practice the very same things. I pray as well, Lord, one other thing for us tonight, that we would really 
we would really be able to sense the goodness that underlies all these things. That we wouldn't pursue this in fear of consequence, but in the joy of recognizing that life as you designed it is a life of flourishing. I ask these things for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night. Yes. Definitely the evening with the Q&A, please. Um, I think you can just leave it on the end, but I'd like you to, um, to clean it up a little bit.